0: Will you join us in opening your copy of God's Word or scrolling to Matthew chapter 4, please. Matthew chapter 4. I know we're in a Deuteronomy series, but this morning we're going to hear Deuteronomy on the lips of Jesus. I have preached from Matthew 4 before today. In fact, some of my material may sound familiar. But uh, there's at least one thing very different about this morning's message. Something actually a little odd. I don't think I have ever used the word weaponize in a sermon before. Certainly I've never used the word weaponize in a sermon title. But that's in fact what Jesus does with Deuteronomy. As he goes toe to toe with the tempter in Matthew chapter 4, three times our Lord quotes from the book that we are studying this spring. It may have been his favorite book, based on the number of times Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. Uh, Let's see today how he uses it against the devil. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1.
1: Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him.
0: I like the way Eugene Peterson in the Message translation starts Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was taken into the wild by the Spirit for the test. The Test, with a capital T. Hero stories, and the gospel is a hero story, often pit a protagonist against an adversary to test his mettle. Beowulf defeats the monster, proving himself worthy to be king. Aragorn is heir to the throne, and pledged to marry the noble Arwen, but before he can rule or wed, he has to prove himself in lonely service on behalf of the people. And here in Matthew chapter 4, our king is tested. He goes toe-to-toe with the enemy on our behalf. He faces the test for us. This is God's will for him. The first verse says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And there's a Greek word in that line that can be translated either tempt or test, depending on the context, and and here it's both. The devil tempts him, tries to get Jesus to sin. His father tests him proving him to be a worthy king and savior. He was led, the text says, by the spirit into the desert. And how often in stories and in real life, the hero goes out into the wild, the wilderness, the woods alone to be tempted, tested. The summer camp I grew up going to every year Uh, had an honorary Indian tribe, Kanakness. And in 1967, older campers who were already part of that honorary tribe initiated me. Uh, I had to be taken blindfolded out into the woods. They turned me around several times so that I would lose my sense of direction and then left me out in the woods by myself to sleep on the ground overnight. They gave me two pieces of bread an uncooked egg in two matches, told me that in the morning I could go no further than 20 yards looking for wood or anything else I needed, and that they would know if I went past 20 yards. And uh, I think it's true that in the 60 plus years prior to my initiation, only one other guy managed to actually start a fire under a rock and cook his egg on the rock. <laughs> Most of us just tossed it off into the woods. Well then, after being retrieved from our overnight sleepless um, night, we were taken up to the top of Campfire Hill to sit in the hot sun and meditate all morning, memorizing scripture, writing an essay, and uh, all this time wearing around our neck a hunk of wood called a chip, that was on a um, twine, a very rough twine string that rubbed our necks uh, all all day long. That afternoon, we did hard physical labor for the camp, and uh, all day got nothing to eat except a little bread and water. Um, The hardest part for me was not the hunger or the labor, but keeping my mouth shut. (laughs) Uh, We were not allowed to talk. And if you talked and a member of the tribe heard you talk, they tied another knot in your string, pulling that chip of wood up closer to your throat. And you were only allowed three mistakes all day. Three knots. If you talked after the three knots, it didn't matter if you were minutes away from celebrating your successful initiation. You were out. That was hard. And I was hungry, and so was Jesus after his test. Not that these tests are in the same league. I only mention mine just to illustrate that um, our cultures, our traditions, and our literature include ordeals, initiations, tests. Jesus' story resonates with our stories, and our stories help us understand His story, he walked where we walked. He fasted for 40 days. (laughs) And in one of the great understatements of all time, we're told that he was hungry at the end. But hunger was not the worst of the test for Jesus. It was a convenient weakness of the flesh for the enemy to exploit. Verse 3 of the text we heard read, says the tempter came to him and said if you are the son of God turn these stones into bread. Now the devil knew who Jesus was and Jesus knew who Jesus was. At the end of chapter 3 he he'd heard the heavenly voice calling him my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So this first temptation is not to get Jesus to doubt his identity but to abuse his privilege. Why should the Son of God go hungry? And if you've ever heard the health and wealth gospel proclaimed, this line of argument will sound somewhat familiar. Why should a Christian drive a clunker? He ought to have a Tesla. Why should Christians shop in thrift stores? Only the best is for God's children. Why should the Son of God Go hungry. But it is not the Father's will that his Son make miracle bread to meet his daily needs. He is the God-man, the God-man. The incarnation means that he is genuinely human, and that means he will eat the way we eat, and sometimes experience hunger pain. Israel, too, was led into the wild to be tested by hunger. And Moses reminded them in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Well, this, of course, makes Jesus' quotation of Deuteronomy even more meaningful. In a similar situation, hungry in the desert, Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Food is important, but heeding God's word is even more important. Bodily appetites are legitimate, normal, but Supposed to be under the control of the man or woman who would please God. The second temptation is different. Instead of tempting Jesus at the level of physical appetite, Satan attacks Jesus' trust in God. Verse 5 The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, and note that the devil can quote scripture too, does it frequently to confuse and mislead God's people. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Whether in fact or in visionary experience, The devil takes Jesus up to the southeast corner of the temple site 450 feet above the Kedron Valley below and says, throw yourself down. Let the angels catch you. What an impression you will make. Everybody will be impressed. Probably hail you as Messiah on the spot. And they probably would, but it would be the wrong kind of Messiah. The kind who could... And would call legions of angels to help in Israel's wars. Jesus could have done this, of course. In Matthew 26, when his enemies are about to arrest him, Peter draws his blade. Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter. If I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels to my rescue. But God's will for his Messiah is a path of patient suffering and testing. Wooing followers through the gospel of the kingdom. And so Jesus answers the devil once more with a quote from Deuteronomy. It is written, verse 7, do not put the Lord your God to the test. About 15 years ago, a Ukrainian man was mauled by a lioness at the Kiev Zoo. He had uh, encountered the animal on purpose. He lowered himself by rope into the lion's enclosure. There were four lions in there at the time. Kicked off his shoes saying, God will protect me. And he walked toward the lions. A lioness met him, knocked him down, and instantly severed his carotid artery. And zoo officials said that this incident was the first of its kind, and it happened in front of a large crowd. The man died. Lesson, similar to what Jesus says. Don't manufacture dangerous situations of that kind to put God to the test. And then thirdly, the most brazen temptation of all, in verse 8, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now the Bible calls Satan the prince of this world, but he is a usurper. The world properly belongs to King Jesus and one day the whole world will recognize that. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God his Father. But between the desert and the throne, there's a cross. and Here Satan's offering our Lord a shortcut. Skip the cross. He says, All this can be yours if you just worship me. And this isn't the last time that Satan tempted Jesus this way. In chapter 16, the enemy speaks through the lips of Peter, who says, Oh, no, Lord, you're not going to die. You're not going to get crucified. I won't let this happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. here, too, Jesus passes the test. He will walk the path that his father has laid out for him. And he dismisses the tempter with a curt away from me and quotes Deuteronomy again. It is written, verse 10, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The uh, classic film, It's a Wonderful Life, celebrates George Bailey's contribution to his community. George is a generous, compassionate proprietor of a local building and loan institution. And uh, George offers help to people who otherwise would not be helped, because the only alternative in their community is the greedy Mr. Potter. Uh, George helps countless young families move out of Potter's rental units and uh, buy their own homes and uh, eventually potter realizes that he's threatened by george's success and he invites george to join his company george sits in this ornate chair which is a symbol of potter's financial success a fire roars in the fireplace Uh, the old miser sits behind a massive desk he offers george an expensive cigar and um, Then Potter paints this picture of a struggling 28-year-old man who's trying to um, take care of his family on a salary of $40 a week, and George uh, finally says, what's your point, Mr. Potter? And the point is, Potter Potter says, is I want to hire you, George. I want you to manage my affairs and run my properties, and I'll start you at $20,000 a year. Shocked, George drops his lit cigar in his lap. $20,000 $20,000 a year, he asks in disbelief. Oh, you wouldn't mind, would you, says Potter, living in the nicest house in town, driving a nice car, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, taking vacations in New York City, maybe even Europe once in a while. You wouldn't mind that, would you, George? George looks over his shoulder and says, you're talking to somebody else, else's me, George Bailey. I know who you are, Potter says. George Bailey, whose ship has just come in, provided he has brains enough to climb aboard, and George is enticed by the prospect of material success, though it would mean giving up his family business. Potter agrees to let George think on it, sleep on it, for 24 hours, and holds out his hand, and George goes to shake hands with Mr. Potter, and then pulls his hand back and says, I don't need 24 hours, I know right now the answer is no. He says, you sit around here and you spin your little web and you think the world revolves around you and your money. But it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. Way to go, George. (laughs) We're all happy at that point in the movie that he does the right thing. Way to go, Jesus. Seeing the tempter for what he is and who he is and resisting temptation. I wonder if the angels in heaven watched and cheered. Way to go, that's our king. The text says that the angels came and attended him. Presumably they brought him something to eat. Presumably they witnessed this first skirmish between the newly anointed and baptized king and the usurper. The king faced temptation for us and showed us how to face temptation. This chapter models how you and I are supposed to defeat the enemy. Three times Jesus is tempted, three times he quotes the word of God. He's the son of God, with the authority to speak with divine authority, but he quotes the Bible. It is written. It is written. It is written. And do you know how to respond when you're tempted? It is written. You're tempted physically, as Jesus was. And who of us has not felt the imperial demands of food, and drink, and sex, and sleep? But man does not live by bread or any appetite alone. You may be tempted spiritually, like Jesus was. John Kessler, a professor at Moody, says that he, he sensed a call to preach when he was in his teens. And to his surprise, his mom, who was not a churchgoer, beamed with pride. Oh, Johnny, she gushed, you'll make a darling minister. Well, darling was not exactly what he was aspiring to. Sometime later, he had a conversation about his call to ministry with one of his college professors, a former rabbi who taught a course on biblical, the Bible as literature, and he seemed pleased that John had set his sights on ministry. What kind of church, he asked. Well, not at all sure how you make such decisions. John guessed it would probably be some kind of Baptist church. Oh, no, the former rabbi said. Don't go to one of those, John. I see you as uh, in the pulpit of an Episcopalian church with a a large manse and maybe a Lincoln in the garage. Only hillbillies go to Baptist churches. John Kessler comments, he might as well have shown me the kingdoms of the world in their splendor and asked me to bow down and worship him. The temptation. Well, Jesus shows us how to defeat the tempter, whether the temptation is on the physical level or the spiritual level, with Scripture, the sword of the Spirit. You're tempted to retaliate against someone who has wronged you, and you remember from the Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek. You're tempted to scorn the counsel of your parents, and then you remember Proverbs 13, 1, a wise son heeds his father's instruction. You're tempted to give up, to give in, and then you remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has come your way except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but will with the temptation provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You'll remember. You'll use scripture to fight the enemy. That is, if you have memorized scripture. You can't wield a sword that's not in your scabbard. So do memorize scripture. Not only is this spiritual discipline centuries old and honored across cultures, it's endorsed by our Lord's example. I'm so glad that when I was a kid, adults had me memorize scripture. Part of the Kanaknus initiation was that before we got to eat anything, we had to memorize the first eight verses of Romans chapter 12. And it still comes back to me in the King James Version. I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be ye not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And Is anybody checking me in the King James right now? Yeah. I'm glad for that. Jesus shows us how to defeat the enemy with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. But even more important in this text than Jesus showing us how to resist the enemy is that he defeated the enemy for us. He did perfectly what we do so imperfectly. He faced the tempter for us. Don't imagine that it was easy for him. (laughs) Luke's version says explicitly that he was tempted by the devil for 40 days, not just after 40 days. For 40 days, the devil was at him. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way or not, but it's only the good person who fully knows the power of temptation. Many of us yield early on in the process, and so we get some relief from that pressure of resistance. But Jesus kept resisting even though the temptation kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. He endured to the end. We read that in the Garden of Gethsemane, his agony of testing caused him to sweat like great drops of blood. But where Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, our king triumphed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And where Israel failed in the desert, Messiah triumphed in the desert. Where I fail again and again and again in my weak attempts to face the tempter, my hero triumphed and so proved himself to be the one perfect man, the one worthy king and deliverer, the only one who lived the perfect life that you and I were supposed to live and die to death that we should have died. A few years ago, I read for the first time in my life, I think, a question that I had never thought about. What if Herod had succeeded in killing Jesus in the cradle? Or what if Jesus had died at age 13 of some disease? Would it, would it have been enough that the eternal Son of God became a man, walked among us, and and died like we die? And and evidently, the the answer to that question is no. that That would not have done it. Our king had to grow to maturity, experience the test, and be shown for his true quality. Hebrews says that he had to be made like us in every way that he might make atonement for us. Our king faced the tempter for us. I probably shouldn't be in Canacnes. I got three knots for talking when I wasn't supposed to talk. And then just before the evening campfire in which we would be welcomed into the Kanaknis tribe, we were allowed to take a brief swim in the camp swimming pool, and I was swimming underwater, and I bumped into somebody's legs, and I came up out of the water and said, oh, excuse me, and there was the chief of the Kanaknis tribe. It was his legs that I bumped into. Somebody said, He talked! And Butch Norton, chief of the Conakness tribe, said, I didn't hear anything. I experienced grace that day. I shouldn't be in the kingdom. God only knows how many knots I have. but he looks past them to the one who lived the life that I should live but can't, the one who died the death that I deserve to die, the one who faced the tempter for me, my king